Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, September 20th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Have you turned the heat on this morning? Yeah, isn't that true? Well, <laughs> <laughs> just weeks ago we yeah. we had the air conditioning full blast, yeah. but it was turned cold on us here in New York, at least. Uh, you uh, spending time to see Susan Charlotte in her upcoming shows? Well, um, it will be coming up uh, soon, Tuesday, uh, September 29th. Um, she's going to have um, three uh, mini events uh, in one setting at Theater 80 St. Mark's. And uh, one of them is uh, Tony Roberts is going to be reading excerpts from his memoir, Do You Know Me? We're going to get a one-act play by Peter Stone. Now, I don't know about this play called Commercial Break, but I'm looking forward to that, given that he wrote 1776. And Susan's uh, promoting herself um, by doing her own play called Come On. So we'll see what uh, that's like. But anyway, um, Tuesday, September 29th, uh, 2 o'clock, go to her website, which is foodforthoughtproductions.com, and find out how you can attend. It's free. All right. Oh, come on, Susan Charlotte. That's come right. On. That's right. So also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So we also have to wish a happy, happy, happy birthday to our friend Douglas Cohn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, so we all take out our albums of No Way to Treat a Lady and we play them today uh, <laughs> in tribute uh, to Doug. Uh, or you could take out his um, musical The Gig. Um, indeed, um, that was recorded as well. Uh, it was done at Manhattan Theater Club um, and um, and a, a good time was had by all. So these are both worthy uh, additions to the musical theater scene. And Mm. full disclosure, yes, Doug and I have been working on a show together, so uh, I will say that. But uh, nevertheless, um, a quite fine talent and an excellent human being. (laughs) So, Michael, also, we uh, need to send some well wishes out to Tommy Rall, right? Yes, Tommy Rall. A friend of a friend posted about him. This is, you know, one of the most amazing careers, I think, in, in show business. Uh, Tommy Rawl appeared in seven Broadway shows from 1948 through 1970, uh, including a starring role in Milk and Honey. Uh, he has featured roles in such classic film musicals as Kiss Me, Kate, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, I think uh, one of his last things on film anyway, was in Funny Girl in the film, he's the prince in the Swan Lake parody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, what a wonderful way to kind of uh, cap that career. And then he had, uh, he's amazing. He was a great, great dancer, as anyone knows who, who's seen him in Kiss Me Kate or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, a really charming actor, uh, 
great looking guy. And then also his voice was so good. His singing voice was so good that uh, he used him in those shows. But then he also had a career as an opera singer uh, after basically after the other stuff or, or, you know, in the latter part of his career, he sang at City Opera and other major places. Well, anyway, um, he is recovering from successful heart surgery that was performed the second week in September. He's approaching his 91st birthday in December. Um, the note from this friend of his says he's in good spirits and will continue to heal for the next few weeks at Fireside Healthcare Center in Santa Monica. Uh, he's not currently allowed any visitors or relatives deliveries, but he would love to get cards or well wishes sent to him. So we uh, we can put this address in the show notes, but mm-hmm. he, you can send to Tommy Rawl, comma, patient at the Fireside Healthcare Center at 947 Third Street in Santa Monica. And the uh, zip is 90403. So this is a, you know, an opportunity to to connect personally with really one of the one of the Broadway greats who's well just the f- yeah the the funny thing um in terms of my own uh, interaction with Tommy Rawl not that I ever met him but um I first discovered him on the Milk and Honey cast album now uh Jerry Herman is famous for his title songs he wasn't then because this was his first show but Tommy Rawl was the guy who sang it mm-hmm. and um you know it, it from the album it doesn't seem like it would be a dancing role so anyway when I discovered uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers after I had discovered Milk and Honey I said oh my god he can dance too uh, I had no <laughs> idea that he was a dancer first and foremost because the milk and honey album didn't suggest that so uh so i did it backwards as so many things in my life have been but that's another story <laughs> now really but how many people do you know who became an opera singer after yeah, huh? having a career yeah. as a broadway dancer and yeah <laughs> <laughs> just incredible <laughs> you know the um the opera world and the musical theater world uh, they're adjacent, but there's some sort of, is it healthy competition or love-hate relationship between the, uh, the communities? Let's say rivalry, yeah. Rivalry? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Jets rivalry. and the Sharks? You yeah. know? <laughs> Maybe. I have to say, though, um, yeah, I was just yesterday thinking of um, Leonard Bernstein, um, Alan Jaylor, and his wonderful song for 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, The President Jefferson March. And it is such a great song. Um, and Ben Bagley did it on one of his albums, and it's, it's a pretty good rendition there. But then, of course, um, the White House Cantata album came out, and that's done with opera singers, and it's not nearly as much fun as the Bagley recording. So I have to say, when um, opera singers tart up uh, musical theater songs, um, it's not to my liking. Michael, how do you feel about that? You're an opera person. I mean, does it bother you? Does it, do you feel like, oh, musical theater has been elevated now when opera singers do um, musical theater roles? Well, I, of course, it really depends. There are s- songs that are more written towards the operatic style to begin with, especially the older songs. And those are the ones that tend to be more successful when sung by opera singers. And then there are a few cases of uh, very few cases of people like Eileen Farrell, mm-hmm. who, when she sang pop and jazz, uh, she sang in a completely different voice than when she sang opera. Also, as someone who made one pop album, I think I mentioned this before, and you've got to get it if you can, is Leontine Price. 
And uh, what are some of the songs? Do you recall? Right is the rain. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, sunrise, sunset. Wow. Uh, it never entered my mind. Hmm. Uh, and Andre Previn is conducting. This is from huh. 1967. And huh. you think she could have had a career doing this. <laughs> huh. That's something. It's just incredible. Wow. Michael, do you have the uh, William Shatner version of Sunrise, Sunset? No, I, I don't have any of Mr. Shatner's out. <laughs> okay. I don't think there are that many, are there? <laughs> Didn't uh, Leonard Ned, Leonard Nimoy also sure. have yeah. the album or two? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, he did. Sure. <laughs> or yeah. uh, who is it? Uh, Jim Neighbors, Gomer Pyle. He, he, he even did a Man of La Mancha. Yeah. Ah. I've never heard it. Have you? Have you heard yes, it? Yes, I used to own that on um, on LP. I don't think it was ever... I don't think it ever got a CD transfer. I went, Not that I, I heard of. I haven't looked for it lately. I don't know if it's uh, accessible. It's so not good. Okay, that was my next question. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a Man of La Mancha fan to begin with, So, uh, though I do like the score. But, I mean, so that was one album I never, never considered buying. The best people on it are Madeline Kahn, who sings I'm Only Thinking of Him, uh-huh. and Richard Tucker sings beautifully to each his Dulcinea. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and oh, Jack Guilford is charming in his way. As, I see. As, uh-huh. as Sancho. Yeah. But uh, the two leads, Marilyn Horn, you might have thought would be really, really great as Aldonza, but I don't know. It just didn't seem to fit her voice uh, as far as I was concerned. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to uh, our interview with Brandon Victor Dixon. My mind is clear now. With us today, we have a very special guest. Brandon Victor Dixon is joining us. Uh, Broadway fans will remember Brandon because he is a Tony Grammy and Emmy nominated actor, producer, and social advocate. Uh, he is with us today to talk about uh, his organization, We Are Foundation, which uh, is an, an organization that is uh, registering people to vote for the upcoming uh, United States election. So, Brandon, thanks for joining us on Broadway Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we're really excited to have you on, uh, not only to talk about, uh, you know, Shuffle Along and Hamilton and everything else that you have done on stage, but off offstage, uh, this, this We Are Foundation. Tell us more about it. Uh, well, you know, the foundation was kind of born, born out of a, a, a contrary set of thoughts and feelings. Uh, it's a very new foundation. We started last year, uh, July and it was born out of both a, an apathy uh, and, and a um, kind of a, a disillusionment with the increasingly polarized, hyperpartisan political and social atmosphere, kind of the lack of nuance in conversation, um, but also, you know, a recognition of the necessity to participate, to, to inject something different into the atmosphere, pushed in the other direction. And that's the vehicle that the We Are Foundation became. And, you know, our our mission is to use the connective power of arts to bridge the gaps between communities by creating access 
and amplifying voices that emphasize our shared humanity. And this year that's, that's manifested in a We Are the Vote initiative and we've been working to register voters, but also propagate, you know, um, more nuanced messages of engagement in uh, the election, the social sphere in general, um, and advocating for others. Well, words that will live forever. We, sir, are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious. You know the rest of it. When you gave that speech from the stage, did you volunteer to do it? Did you all draw straws to see who would do that and address Vice President Pence? Um, How did that actually happen? I was asked. So I was at uh, dinner uh, around six o'clock before our show. I think our show was at 7 p.m. that evening, um, 7.30. And the producer, Jeffrey Seller, called me and said, you know, we we got word a little bit a little while ago that we were going to have a special guest this evening. And we discussed it amongst ourselves and decided that we we should all make a statement. Um, we've mocked some, you know, thoughts together, a version together. We'd like to share it with you and the cast and get your thoughts. And would you, you know, deliver it for us? And so, you know, we shared it. We we edited some things and kind of agreed on what we were going to say. And then, you know, I agreed to do it. Now, you must have been honored in a certain sense that you were the one chosen by Jeff Seller to do this. I'll be honest. I don't think about these sorts of things in that way. Um, and as much as it's become an event, I didn't think of it as that as, as an event beforehand. It was... Mm-hmm. A request was made, you know, traditionally during that time of year after the show, one of the principals gives the Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS speech. Sure, sure. You know, we important the audience for for support. And um, we were in the swing of that. And and I felt comfortable, particularly, you know, I felt I I was grateful that my, you know, the, the company wanted to make a statement considering the nature of the atmosphere, use their platform in that way. And, um, and, you know, the, the cast is all, all with us. What it turned into, you know, uh, now I suppose I look back on it and yes, I suppose there was some recognition of the uniqueness of that moment. And so I, I appreciate whatever they thought of me that they asked me to, to be the custodian of it. And I was grateful to do it. Mm-hmm. May I say thank you for using the word importune in that sentence. That was very, <laughs> very impressive. I don't think I've ever heard anyone use that word other than, other than in the... Uh, I'm sure Sondheim used it, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Brandon is a Columbia man, so... Uh, well, there and, you go. <laughs> so, Brandon, what brought you to Columbia University? Um, a desire to to be on the stage, um, really. You know, I, I I I wanted to come to the city so that I could audition to to be in productions, uh, but I also I wanted to have a home base in the city. So you know, that's different from um, uh, an NYU um, and even Juilliard to a certain extent. So that is why I chose Columbia, and also I had interest uh, outside of the arts, and so I wanted a kind of a, a broader landscape to in, in which to kind of grow. Um, that's why I chose it. Rumor has it that Ragtime was the first show you ever saw. Ragtime is the first Broadway show I ever saw. Last row with binoculars. They had little tiny binoculars. <laughs> and I saw Audra and Stokes. Uh-huh. Uh, Good. Did I'm you ever imagine when you uh, sat in the last row with binoculars that you would ever uh, be on the stage working with people of, uh, like Audra and Stokes? Sure. I did. I did. good for for you good for you but how does a boy from suburban maryland get interested in the first place um you know and and look i i say it like that kind of matter of fact but it's it's the truth you know i used to say this um when i was younger i noticed 
the difference between myself and a lot of my peers. Not that, you know, in, in, uh, I knew exactly what, what I wanted to do from a very young age, which enabled me to start making choices that could increase the probability of it happening from a, sooner, right? Mm-hmm. For, those of, for a few people around my age who, when I was younger who just didn't know yet, when you don't know what you want to do, it's hard to move forward, right? And mm-hmm. so I was, I was fortunate in coming in at a very early age with the knowledge that this is what I wanted to do. And I was also in a school system that recognized the crucial importance of the arts, both in terms of um, emotional and com- social development um, and, and in terms of just kind of a comprehensive uh, uh, mental acuity, right? And so I, I took a music class every day. We did three musicals a year. We did a Shakespeare play. And so kind of by force of habit, I was used to engaging in the arts when I went to high school in D.C., and in D- being in D.C., I was able to take advantage of the artistic opportunities around me to kind of further cultivate that. And my high school is very supportive as well. So favorite roles in high school include? Uh, Sky Masterson. Uh-huh. Um, El Gallo. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and, and th- I mean, those are, those are, those are probably my, my two favorite. I mean, I also did, we did Anything Goes, and I played, uh, uh, you know, Billy. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And also I, I did uh, Hello, Dolly, and I played Cornelius. Uh-huh. I enjoyed doing that. But probably Sky Masterson and, and El Gaio were my favorite. El Gaio is actually one of my favorite roles that I've ever played. How wonderful. And uh, <laughs> you never played it here in the city. Uh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, there's still time. There'll be a revival, so we'll see what happens. But, yeah, but um, you know, unfortunately, you, it, the only way you could do it is if you, you, you found somebody really clever to redo Rape. Because you can't perform rape anymore. And all of the versions that they have don't do it justice, unfortunately. Yes, yeah, true. Um, in terms of um, Motown, um, what was your interaction with Barry Gordy? Was there some, none, a lot, a little, what? A lot. Uh, a lot. I was very fortunate to have a lot of interaction with him. Uh, I was brought into the process very early on because um, the director, Charles Randolph Wright, was one of my mentors. Uh, so when he got the job, he called me. How wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, began a with three or four years long process of going out to LA and spending time with Barry and getting to know the Motown family. And, you know, we still like, I still email him on his birthday and I saw him when I was in LA a couple months ago. Like it's, it very much is, I will say, you know, the whole Motown experience is very much like the, and just an extension of the whole Motown story. Uh, I, I would say in all aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, Hmm. So uh, let me ask you um, about Shuffle Along, you know, um, a a show that, in my opinion, left us uh, much too soon. Um, What was your introduction to Shuffle? So I had just come back from doing Opera Boys in London. And excuse me, I received a, a call about the audition. And when I when I got it. Uh, you know, I, there was no script and (laughs) so I I had to, but you know, there were a couple of sides. I did a little bit of research about you because I knew he was who it was about. Kind of learned how to play the music in the, in the song, in the, in the scene and went in and did my audition. You know, I did my audition with George. This is the first time I've auditioned for George since I was in college. That was one of my first professional auditions for Harlem song. Um, and and then you know I, I I got the job, but what was funny is that when when I was in negotiations 
I didn't, I still didn't know that much about the project. I was in negotiations and, you know, my, my agents were like, okay, well, you know, we know what your is, but this is, they're being hard, playing hardball. They're only offering so-and-so and, you know, because they already closed everybody else's deal. And I was like, that's not my fault that they closed everybody else's deal. I was like, this is not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like, no, no, we understand, we get it. But, you know, it's just, it's, you know, with, with Audra and, and, and Stokes and Ben, I said, with who? And they said, did we tell you the cast? I said, no. She said, oh, okay, Audra McDonald, Brian Stokes, Mitchell, Billy. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Just to tell them I'm, I didn't know that. Tell them I'm good. <laughs> like, well, I'm not going to pay more than them. That's dumb. That's, I'm not going to fight that fight. So, you know, then once I once I got the scope of the project, then I was in. And the, the, the building of that show is one of the most unique and extraordinary experiences, um, I think, of my, of my life. And I think of, of uh, it encapsulates what Broadway really used to be and what Broadway will probably fail to be again. It's a very unique process. Brandon, I've told this story before, but we had Billy Porter on the podcast um, right right after he had been cast in the show, and he also didn't know much about it. Uh, and so we were talking to him and asking questions, and he, he was telling as much as he could. But then at one point, he said, uh, you know, but I better stop talking about this now because... Uh, you know, because uh, I don't know if Scott Rudin wants me to talk about it anymore, and I'm I'm scared of him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost thinking Billy Porter is uh, as powerful as Scott Rudin these days. <laughs> yes, you know, with the, the the news yes. about Billy Porter uh, uh, coming to encores and doing encores, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's really something. <laughs> um, no comment. Um, uh, Brandon what did you know about the Scott Sparrow boys if anything before you took the role in the show Uh, I didn't I didn't actually know anything about it you know I I I, when I got the audition again uh, I I read up about it there was no script Uh, I read up about the story and I found it interesting but another funny story so I was I I had up for the workshop and I was at home in Maryland and my brother was visiting. My brother's a lawyer and, or he was. Uh, and so I was sitting at the, the table and I opened the script. They sent it to me for the first time. And I said, Oh man. And he said, what? And I said, I just, I just got the script. I'm up for the show that I, I think it's interesting, but the, it's the first page. It's called the Scottsboro boys, a minstrel show. Hmm. Uh, like For real? And I was like, yeah. But I said, okay. <laughs> All right, all right. You know what? It's let me read it. Let me read it. And it's a workshop. Let me read it. And then I, <laughs> then I started reading it, and then I saw what they were doing, and then I immediately got very, very excited. It's such a powerful scene at the end when um, they're giving him the chance to say, "Yes, I did it," and he won't do it because he didn't do it because the law is going to. They want you to say you're guilty so that then he can be indulgent and say, "Well, we forgive you. All right, we'll let you out," and that gets them off the hook. And it's really something that your character will not do that. Yeah, it's something. It's a it's a shame what it costs him. But oh, indeed, has your. Uh, where, where did your activism and um, and political roots uh, come from? You mentioned that you were in uh, you went to high school in D.C. Were you uh, were you aware politically active politically in D.C. or how did that come about? Uh, not really. I, I did have a, 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 a solid civics uh, you know education, and you know I participated in the, whatever the young young Congress or you know one of those things, but I wasn't deeply politically engaged. 
Um, but I have always been a deeply empathetic person. Um, my mother was, you know, has been a social worker um, throughout a lot of her life, and I've always felt a deep connection to advocacy. Like I said, you know, one of my brothers is a is a lawyer; the other one served in the Air Force. Um, and so I think there is a in in being an artist, which is a, a a form a conduit of connection to people. Right, you you're seeking to create a deeper understanding of yourself and with others. Um, I have tended towards to get, engage in stories and engage with other artists who want to use the power of the medium to expand consciousness, right? To to create different levels of understanding between people because art is able to transcend in a unique way. So the the, the We Are organization and its uh, outreach to register new voters uh, with the news this Friday night that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, mm-hmm. Supreme Court Justice, had passed away on Friday evening, many uh, organizations uh, were uh, inundated with... Uh, with new requests for information and donations and things like that. Did you guys see something similar at We Are um, uh, this weekend as as uh, the news set in with everybody? Well, you know, We Are, uh, right now we're engaged in a, in a campaign that's you know, driving, driving engagement up towards National Voter Registration Day on the 22nd. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Me Becomes We campaign. Um, you know, we kicked off a town hall on Thursday, and so... All this week, we have been kind of posting voter information, voter engagement um, in our social media campaign. And what we have seen is we've seen a fervent engagement in that campaign, which has been really, really great. What is uh, on the horizon for you insofar as new projects? Uh, anything uh, we, sh- we should know about or able to talk about? Uh, anything exciting on the horizon for you? Um, there, You know, in the arts sphere, there are things in development. But right now, a lot of the energy is focused on doing what we can in this challenge landscape to in, engage people in uh, November 3rd, really. Mm. So there... Uh, first things first, yeah. There are 44 days left until November 3rd. Uh, I bet you your calendar's full. Mm. Yeah, and part of that is, 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 is spreading the message to people. You know, that's, that's when the election's over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can start voting today in half the states in the country. So it's just like, mm-hmm. just... Start voting. This is the this is election period. You're using the uh, uh, a lot of on the We Are website. We are dot org. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. But the We Are website is beautiful, and and I've noticed you have a a handful of uh, of friends of yours uh, from the from the Broadway uh, uh, community that are involved there. Uh, are you able to use the Broadway community nationwide to uh, reach out to voters in Lots of the swing states. Well, that's what we've been working to do, and that's you know our our our, our campaign, our current campaign, is in partnership with Belt the Vote. I was started by you know Rory O'Malley um, and, and Kirsten Wyatt. We're partnered with Ham for Change, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. You know, so we we we're kind we kind of been kind of galvanizing all of our forces, and part of the campaign is like we have. Did you know facts and mail-in voting facts for all of the 50 states, right? So, you know, deadlines um, and access to information. So people are posting their, you know, wherever their home from, where their hometown is, they're posting Mm -hmm. the information for this is what's going on in Idaho. This is North Dakota, Michigan, New York, Florida. So, you know, we are working to, to do it nationally in that way with partnerships. All right. Well... 
Brandon, thank you for taking time on your Sunday morning to come talk with us on Broadway Radio. Uh, Brandon Victor Dixon is the co-founder of the We Are Foundation. He's also a Tony Grammy and Emmy Award-nominated actor, producer, and a social advocate. Uh, and Brandon, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. I don't like what I see All I ask is that you listen to me And remember I've been your right hand man all along You have set them all on fire They think they found the new messiah And they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong I remember it was great talking to Brandon Victor Dixon. Uh, I, you know, there's always so much to talk about, and I and I try not to monopolize uh, our uh, our guests' time. But I, I meant repeatedly to ask him about Jesus Christ Superstar, and I didn't ask him about the uh, mm. the live version of Superstar mm. and, and and everything that was involved with that. That next time we're going to have to uh, get him in yeah. and talk about it. So, uh, this week we thought that we would um, discuss um, plays that have been made into musicals. We've previously discussed plays that we think could be good musicals, but let's talk about the ones that actually have been made into musicals, and let's uh, do a deep dive there and, you know, whether they were good and bad or how they could be fixed. And so, uh, Michael, this was your topic, so why don't you start us off? Well, should we start off with Pygmalion? I guess it's a good uh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so fascinating. So many people said that it could not be done. They said it could not be done, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, including Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, looked at it for a bit. The Shaw play, the famous, brilliant Shaw play Pygmalion, and they just felt that they couldn't crack uh, the nut of musicalizing it. Uh, and I think actually that when Alan J. Lerner uh, had the idea, he went to Rogers and or Hammerstein and, and mentioned that he was thinking of doing it with Fritz Lowe. And they said, we tried, but we we couldn't do it, you know. Uh, and I, I don't know if they said it can't be done, but they they, they just mentioned mm-hmm. it. Uh, so uh, as we all know, uh, quite a brilliant quite a brilliant and incredibly phenomenally successful musical was made out of Pygmalion by Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe. And, Though and, they did give up for a while. Yes, yes. <laughs> quite a few years. Quite mm. a few years. Mm. Many false starts, apparently many, many songs written and discarded and also uh, different lyrics. Uh, there, It seems uh, like I've encountered in various places, multiple alternate lyrics for many of the songs and, and many of them as good as the ones that, made it, <laughs> you know, but it just, they didn't work for whatever reason. I'm thinking of specifically of why can't the English, hmm. uh, but that probably goes for all of the, all of the songs. It just, uh, they, the adaptation, many, 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 many pages of it are word for word from Pyg- Pygmalion. And then, uh, Lerner just made ch- changes. Uh, uh, 
uh, adding some some scenes of, of action that occurs off stage in the original or, or doesn't occur at all, uh, opening it up in some ways. An interesting thing here is that it's often said that the, uh, in a way that My Fair Lady, the musical, is based more on the screenplay of yes, Pygmalion. Because um, when a play is opened up into a movie, in, into a non-musical movie, um, sometimes the opening up is is done in a way that is similar uh, to what needs to be done when it's made into a musical. And um, so, for example, th there are scenes outdoors, uh, many scenes outdoors in various places in the, uh, in the, in the movie, the non-musical movie of Pygmalion that kind of led to what happens in, in the, in the musical, My Fair Lady. So that I think is a great, if only for its phenomenal success and the brilliance of the adaptation, that is a good place for us to start. And ter in terms of a play that was incredibly successfully uh, adapted to the musical stage. And then, of course, uh, given its unprecedented phenomenal success, back into a, a movie, a movie musical, which was also beyond successful. Well, um, when you mention all these uh, discarded lyrics, uh, that brings up the complete lyrics of Alan J. Lerner that Dominic McHugh and Amy Ash mm -hmm. did. Um, I urge everybody to get this book because I'm telling you, they it seems like they found every scrap of paper that Alan J. Lerner ever wow. encountered. And uh, so you will find all these discarded lyrics um, right then and there. So um, a, a phenomenal book. Uh, I, I think the most successful of all the books that deal with complete lyrics um, because really, as I say, scraps of paper, it seems. Steve mm. Bell brings up in the chat room that Mary Martin, upon hearing Lerner and Lowe sure. uh, <laughs> right. play the score, they, she wrote, those poor boys, they lost their talent. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if only uh, we could we could list the hundreds of thousands of productions of My Fair Lady that have played uh, a number of times on Broadway, on tours, and in regions, and in community theaters, and everywhere else can uh, you can you see her in that role i really can't no um, not at all you you, you too huh yeah um so. i don't know if she ever did actually maybe you know i i don't i don't know all of her shows did she ever actually play british hmm i i don't not that I know, not nothing comes to mind unless you consider Peter Pan British, but uh, yeah, right, right. but that's that's a different type of thing entirely. He yeah. was born British, but um, you know he didn't stay around in England very long apparently. Right, right. Um, but uh, but um, I think she played um, a foreign woman in uh, the play. Do you uh, turn somersaults? I don't. I think that was a foreign character, but I don't remember if it was British. What I do remember was going to a Wednesday matinee and the place was empty to the point of which uh, there was announcements beforehand. Uh, everybody come down uh, in the balcony to the orchestra, fill up the orchestra. Wow. And who would expect that from a Mary Martin vehicle? But it really goes to show that people want to see certain people in musicals and not in plays. Hmm. 
That is something. So, uh, Peter, what's your uh, start off on conversions? Uh, Chicago. And the reason I bring this up is because Chicago was very, very, uh, well, the, <laughs> the creators of Chicago were very clever not to make it into a realistic musical. Because if this were done as a simple musical uh, where Roxy Hart is supposed to be the character we can get behind, um, it would be very, very difficult for us to get behind her. Uh, we would really have um, great contempt for her. And the way they get around that is by making it a vaudeville and making um, every uh, number a, a, a musical comedy turn. So in the marvelous Funny Honey number, which is so clever in, in a number of ways, especially because it does move the action forward when it starts. Roxy is very happy that her husband, Amos, is going to stand up for her. And by the end of the number, uh, she can't stand that sap um, because, of course, um, he finds out the truth and uh, he's not going to do that anymore. Well, at least at that moment in time, he does come around, I'll grant you. But but the idea of doing it as a vaudeville really solved the problem of um, our not worrying about whether or not uh, we should feel sympathy for Roxy um, because it really became a vaudeville show. So very smart approach. And I truly believe Chicago would have never worked if it were done as a traditional sixties musical, which is when indeed Gwen Verdon had the idea to do it. I'd love to know exactly when they said, Hmm, the only way it's going to work is if we do it in this stylistic fashion, but that's made the <laughs> difference. And little did they know that making that incredibly brilliant decision would set the groundwork for a phenomenally successful film version uh, that completely gets around the problem that some people have with musicals where people suddenly burst into yeah, song yeah, yeah. and was absolutely not an issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and Rob Marshall, to his credit, recognized that it, it, to do basically what was done in the show but in in cinematic terms, in terms of the uh, all of the songs being sort of fantasy sequences, if mm -hmm. you would, hmm. just brilliant. Hmm. So, uh, what's next on your list, Michael? Uh, the two most famous Jerry Herman shows: uh, "Hello Dolly," based on the Matchmaker, uh, and. Uh, and Mame based on Auntie Mame, which was a book first mm -hmm. by Patrick Dennis. But there again, the uh, I think it's fair to say that the musical is much more closely based on the play uh, at, at, to the point where uh, both the play and the musical have the same writers, uh, the, the same librettists or book writers, uh, Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee, which, by the way, I always think, I suppose if Robert E. Lee we're starting his career nowadays. He'd probably have to change his name. Ah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I would say two, uh, two model adaptations. It is interesting to me, fascinating, and, and we don't have to get into it because it's a whole separate discussion. I, I think for a number of reasons, MAME has dated far more, actually, than, uh, than Hello, Dolly and The Matchmaker. Uh, but either way, they were both great, great hits in their day. And oh, and also, I think uh, I, it's, I've always found it amusing that the original title of the, the play, The Matchmaker, uh, there was an earlier version of it that Thornton Wilder wrote called The Merchant of Yonkers. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think that that's, I, I don't know that version, but I think it's worth it if only for the title. I think that is so clever to give, uh, you know, to take a title of 
one of the most serious, darkest Shakespeare plays ever written uh, and put it on this light little farce uh, just by changing one word uh, in the title. I, I, th- th- that was just a, a really, really wonderful, <laughs> clever thing to do. Tony Janicki talks about uh, the musical "Take Me Along" based upon mm. the film of Ob Wilderness. Did, did mm. that make your play? Did that make your lists? It made mine because um, <clears throat> I adore "Take Me Along," and I think it's a really great score. A lot of people criticize it tremendously because it was made as a vehicle for Jackie Gleason, who was a big TV star at the time. Because in the original play by Eugene O'Neill, uh, his only real comedy, by the way, um, the uh, the character of Sid is a subsidiary character, and they made him into uh, the main character here. But I think very successfully, his story about um, being a drunk and um, and being in love with a woman who loves him but just does not want to marry a drunk, I think is a real uh, big issue. And yes, um, the play centers on Richard. Um, well, by the way, his brother's um, is Arthur, and their last name is Miller. Uh, yeah. So long before Arthur Miller became a playwright, um, Arthur Miller was a character in a Eugene O'Neill play. And uh, anyway, so um, O'Neill centered on Richard and uh, his um, growing up and uh, learning about life and going uh, to a, a place of ill repute and uh, meeting a prostitute and uh, her getting him drunk and all that goes with that. Uh, that's what O'Neill really centered on Sid was a subsidiary character, but I do believe that uh, the idea of uh, Sid being um, a major character is a perfectly fine one. And I do believe Take Me Along is one of the great scores of all time, of all time, and I think it has the best reprise ever in a Broadway musical, and that's the song Staying Young. Walter Pidgeon, a star from the 30s, um, was also in the show, and he... um, he gets that uh, song and the reprise. And I urge you, if you do nothing else in, from that score, listen to the original song and listen to the reprise and see if you see what I mean that I think is so remarkable about the reprise. Um, and by the way, the title number, Take Me Along, I only discovered recently, I noticed, was actually done as an in one, meaning that the scrim came down while they changed the set behind. And it's a great song and it's a great title song. It was even, I'm sorry to say, used as nixon's campaign song way back when uh nixon's the one as opposed to take me along and um but if i one has to assume that if the scenery did not need to be changed that we might not even have that song that um mm-hmm. it, there it was um right uh, at the lip of the stage uh jackie gleason and walter pigeon doing this fabulous song um so so yes i'm very grateful that our wilderness became a musical <laughs> I wonder if that line, those three words are even in the play. I, I can't recall offhand. I, w- I wonder if it was it just a little jumping off point, those, those three words at some point, if someone says that. We'll have to look through the play again. I'm, I'm going to guess that they weren't in the play because I have seen the play several times after I've known Take Me Along. And this, ironically enough, this is another one where I knew the musical before I knew the play. Um, but I think I would have noticed in subsequent productions, uh, just like when I watched the movie of The Quiet Man, uh, when they come to the word Donnybrook, you know, because that's the musical version. Uh, that's the name of that. Right. Um, I always smile. So I think I would have smiled to Take Me Along if we were in the original um, uh, wilderness, but I don't think so. I like when plays really take a, a big leap, and certainly Two for the Seesaw took a big leap uh, when it became Seesaw, because Two for the Seesaw was simply a two-character play. 
and uh, originated by Henry Fonda and Anne Bancroft. Uh, and um, suddenly it's a musical that became uh, with a slightly different focus because one of the things it wanted to do, though Michael Bennett was highly involved with this uh, once he took over from Ed Sheeran in uh, Detroit, mm. was making it a love letter to New York City at a time when <clears throat> there wasn't much love to, for New York City. Uh, mm. The 70s were approach, uh, were in very much in full force and Times Square wasn't looking so hot. And um, I still remember in the late 60s, Variety doing an editorial saying Times Square needs a facelift. I still remember that that was the term they used mm. in the time when Variety's um, <laughs> language was a little more colorful and uh, less <laughs> corporate than it is now. So um, Seesaw really wanted to show us uh, that, uh, yeah, for all its warts and all, uh, New York was still uh, an exciting place to be. The opening song, My City, um, talked about the fact that there was massage parlors, um, movies rated triple X, but we love the city anyway, even uh, with all its problems. But uh, going around town, uh, they met a, a, a young Spanish kid who sang Spanglish, and uh, it was just nice to see the celebration of the city imposed, and I mean that word lovingly, on uh, the two-character show. And of course, while David is mentioned offhand in the um, play as a friend of uh, Gittle Mosca, the Anne Bancroft character, uh, he was brought into the show and was eventually, not originally, but eventually played by Tommy Toon, who won his first of many Tony Awards. I think he has nine um, playing this role uh, in in a musical. Also giving, by the way, when he won his Tony Award, one of the best speeches ever. Um, and uh, if you can find that on YouTube, I, I urge you to do so. Uh, so so it was great fun to see uh, Tommy Toon uh, really make a name for himself right then and there. Uh, because, you know, he had been in a joyful noise and he had been in Baker Street, but he didn't have really a chance to shine. And this gave him a chance to shine. And um, boy, for the next 20 years, he did shine. Uh, Alan Teasley brings up that um, that uh, Carousel in Oklahoma were placed first. They sure were. Yep. They sure were. They're both on my list. <laughs> so, Michael, tell us uh, what you think about Oklahoma Carousel. Well, uh, Green Grow the Lilacs was the title of the play by Lynn Riggs, who, uh, when I was a kid, I always assumed had to be a woman. Sure, me too. <laughs> but no, no, it was a, a, a gentleman. Um, and I think that I got a copy of that years and years ago, uh, but I honestly can't say I remember it. So I'm going to have to look at that again. Uh, the, uh, the adaptation into Oklahoma, needless to say, is, has was stood the test of time in, in the most phenomenal way possible. One of the great works of art ever produced by the musical theater. And in the case of Lilium, the Ferenc Molnar, Molnar? Yeah. I, I'm probably not pronouncing it right, uh, play that was adapted into Carousel. That I have seen two or three productions of the of the of the non-musical play and i'm happy to say it it holds up really really well uh not to say that we want to give up the music uh and it, mm -hmm. uh, you know i'm really glad that they wrote that but fascinating to see them and there again um you might not think it would be true in this case but many scenes that are pretty much word for word you know given of course the the uh the fact that it was adapted in terms of the locale being switched from, I guess, Budapest 
to the, uh, to the coast of Maine, uh, which, which obviously, obviously means that the dialogue itself is going to be quite different. But the, but the, uh, I mean, as far as the words and the expressions, but the scenes, are, many of them are very, very, very similar. I think um, Lillian actually spends more time with Billy in the afterlife. It sure does. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the and the ending, I won't give a spoiler, but let's just say that the ending is not quite the same <laughs> as what happens in Carousel, although it is open to interpretation, uh, I think a little bit more. Um, but you should really try to, uh, try to catch a, a production of Lilium if you ever see one happening again. Cause in fact, there's a movie. Um, it's a yes. silent, I believe, with Charles Boyer. No, not silent. It isn't? Yeah, no. In fact, it's on the... Um, I don't... Wait... I don't think so. Uh, maybe the two. Oh gosh, I can't remember. It's one of the D, one of the DVDs of it's, Carousel has it as a, oh does it yeah, the whole film yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, I have it on a separate DVD. Yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, um, and I haven't watched it in a long time, but yeah, I, I did think it was um, um, a silent, but um, I won't uh, swear to that. Tony Janicki. Tony Janicki says Lilium is in French, not silent. Right. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we wish the French were silent. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's fun to see Charles Boyer speaking in his native language. Uh huh. So that's what it is. Um, yeah. Back to uh, back to take me along. Two things, James. You're too young, but uh, Peter, do you remember that title song was also used? Uh, on a commercial, on a TV commercial in the 60s, I think maybe for a, a travel agency. I, I, I think it was an airline. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're in the same ballpark there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah indeed. Um, so uh, in, in, in terms of Lilium, of course, um, there's the famous story that uh, because Roger and Hammerstein uh, put on a, a, a more positive ending, they were petrified of what Molnar would think when he came to see the show. And right. he liked it better. So, uh, so that's really quite nice uh, that that happened. Uh, Tony, um, Tony Janicki asked a question about uh, about Take Me Along, um, uh, and I didn't bring it up when you guys were talking about it. But since we looped back, I thought I'd mention it uh, that sure. it was re- that Take Me Along is really based upon the film version of Our Wilderness rather than the stage play. I don't know it well enough to say, but it's also how fascinating uh, and how great that Bob Merrill also had a success with the adaptation of another mm-hmm. Buffy and O'Neill play, Anna Christie, Into mm-hmm. New Girl in Town. Uh, and I, I, I may have said before, I'm not a big fan of uh, Mr. Merrill's work when he was only writing lyrics to other people's music, as in Funny Girl and Sugar. But I think he... Uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me that he... To me, he was so much better when writing both music and lyrics for the two shows we were mentioning here and also carnival for example i uh and o'neill you would you would not think would be easy to adapt to the musical stage but both of those are really really solid efforts i think and what's funny is there's some musical theater book i don't remember what it is but uh it was written shortly after take me along and it says uh and bob merrill who's adapting the works of o'neill into musicals indicating that he was going to go on doing it uh-huh. um so i but i don't remember what book that was but yeah. i do remember reading that um and i think it's uh, kind of funny um yeah uh, i think uh 
I, I, I agree with you to some degree, uh, Michael. I think that um, he uh, did uh, excellent work, and I love all three of those scores that you're talking about. But I think his lyrics for Funny Girl are terrific, and um, and to a lesser degree, Sugar. But um, I, I uh, he, for one thing, if for nothing else, the music that makes me dance is such a great expression, and um, I, 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 the way everything's coming up, roses went into the um became an idiom i wish that the music that makes me dance became an idiom and frankly i try to make it one um whenever <laughs> i um when somebody is telling me about um a new boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever and i said so he or she has the music that makes you dance so i do my part to keep that phrase alive but uh but i i, I like the lyrics to funny girl quite a bit well and, i certainly agree about that song it's some <laughs> of the some of the others i, I disagree but okay yeah, no that's a beautiful song uh alan was also asking about uh what you thought about the uh the translation of kender and ebbs the visit um, a little perfunctory, I have to say, and uh, that play is so powerful that um, I, I, I do feel that um, it didn't uh, match that. Um, but, you know, these these guys um, had been writing for a long time and uh, this was um, towards um, later in life. And so under those circumstances, who knows what, what might have happened if they had tried it earlier. It's fine. It's fine, but um, it doesn't uh, eclipse the play, and that's the hardest thing when you when you do a musical that doesn't um, um, eclipse the play. And I guess the one that really did more than any other is the play of Porgy, mm-hmm. which of course became Porgy and Bess, and um, and we really have to respect that one um, for giving us um, one of the great scores of all time, if not the greatest um, score of all time. And uh, we were talking earlier about opera versus musical theater. And certainly uh, there's <laughs> remember that when the, the show opened in 1935, they not only sent the drama critics, they sent the music critics too. Hmm. Big, big caveat though on the visit, as I, I may have mentioned before, and I have to mention again, I had seen the show pre-Broadway uh, in at the signature down in Arlington, Virginia. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Uh, Oh, oh, you did. That's right. Yeah. I keep forgetting. Do you, I forget, do you not agree that that version was quite a lot better? I liked it more there. I wonder if it had something to do with the intimacy of it all. Um, but I did like it more there. I don't remember specifics uh, to say, gee, when they dropped that song, or boy, the one they added, uh, they replaced it with something that was uh, worse. No, um, I, I don't have a memory of uh, that, but I, I did like it more in Virginia. Well, it was considerably longer. Uh, first of all, it had an intermission, but so that's one part of the reason why it was longer, but there was also more material. And I don't uh, remember specifics about songs either, but I, I was able to see uh, a, a video of it recently, and it reconfirmed my opinion that it just, for whatever reason, it was so much more powerful uh, partly the writing and I think uh, maybe partly largely the direction, uh, uh, to be honest. But I wish that that one 
that version had been the one that had come to Broadway. I think, I think maybe it might have been a different story. Of course, we'll never know. Well, it, it, this may be worth a YouTube search, too. But when I got the demo, there was a song called You Know Me, sung by two women um, who are very jealous of Clara and what has happened to her. Mm. Because, of course, she was the town pump and, um, you know, the, everybody scorned her and drove her out of town. Um, and now she's come back and she's the richest woman in the world. And um, they, they, the two women expressing their jealousy in a hilarious song. And um, I don't even think it was done in Virginia. But I think it's a terrific song. And it, again, uh, a YouTube search may be worthwhile here for You Know Me from The Visit, um, because I think it's a funny song. And the show could have used a little levity um, at that point. So right. Um, right. so I think it would have been uh, very good. Um, a musical that really isn't an adaptation um, of a play, but um, it wouldn't exist if it weren't for the play, though I'll grant you it was a novel first as well. Um, and that's uh, The Bad Seed um, inspired Ruthless. And I have to say, Ruthless, when I saw it at the uh, National um, um, Music Theater Festival that happens uh, most Septembers, um, was 90 minutes and out. There was no second act as there is now. And I know that these guys were talked into having a second act uh, that takes place many years later. And I think it was an enormous mistake. But what I saw, um, the 90 minute version uh, was so perfect and such a, a, a hilarious uh, riff on the bad seed. Um, uh, and, um, but still there's enough in uh, the, um, the ruthless that we know that is worthwhile. And, um, but I like the fact that they took it as a jumping off point. I mean, I, sometimes there are musicals that uh, are adapted from plays that uh, pretty much go by the book. Uh, and um, certainly 110 The Shade fits that category. I mean, if you listen to Starbucks um, speech when he starts talking about I'll bring rain to this town, it's amazingly close to what um, Jones and Schmidt uh, wrote, um, mostly, of course, um, Jones, the uh, lyricist. Uh, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it, it may be the closest speech uh, into song that we have in all of musical theater, but um, the one thing they did do was bring in uh, the Leslie Ann Warren character. Um, uh, that's not in the play. She's not in the play, but she is in the musical. So they did uh, expand a little there. But pretty much it's, it's, it's the play with uh, songs inserted. And that's okay, too. You know, if the song's good enough, and Lord knows the songs from 110 in the Shade is certainly good enough. But, um, but still, I like it when people uh, go off on a tangent. One show I never saw that I only heard about, Quitman Flood III, who was um, one of the porters in the original production of On the 20th Century, wrote a musical version of Harvey. Now, this is not the one that got on with huh. Donald O'Connell and Patricia Routledge. Um, but I never saw it. I only know that it got as far as a reading or a workshop or something like that. But supposedly, Harvey had something to do with Playboy magazine. That's all I know. But I mean, you know, Harvey's a rabbit and rabbit was the symbol. Uh, you know, they used to have bunnies in oh. <laughs> the club. That's all I know. And um, but uh, I was intrigued. You know, that's all I can say. I was intrigued. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing how some decisions are made. Um, the fact that uh, nonsense is done on the set of Greece had to do with the fact the first time they did a reading, they were using the stage where Greece was being done. And they said, oh, let's just do it. So um, so you never know why certain decisions are made. But uh, but I do believe 
that um, there's something um, of interest there. At least, you know, it, I would like to have seen it. I might have said, oh, my God, this is terrible. What are they crazy? Especially because I'm crazy for Harvey, which I think is one of the all time great plays. But um, still, I was intrigued to know exactly what Quitman Flood the Third had in mind. So Paul Whitty brings up uh, that we can't forget Merrily. Yeah, yeah, boy, that that was greatly changed too, um, because uh, um, Franklin Shepard, Richard Niles in the original play um, was was not a, a composer, uh, and um, but you know what's what's what really is interesting is as time went on and Merrily got rewritten. Um, the the scene that we now have where there is uh, acid thrown in the face mm-hmm. um, is actually in the original Kaufman Hart play. Mm-hmm. So uh, so they did return to that, uh, which is an astonishingly dramatic um, thing to have happen. And um, maybe it's a good thing we don't see the scene after that, um, <laughs> which would have been done before. But um, but uh, yeah, Merrily is is such um, an interesting uh, case, and um, I, I still feel very privileged to have seen the very first preview and the very final performance, um, and seeing the differences that occurred. Uh, there was a group of guys who used to go every Monday night to see it, and um, <laughs> they even uh, had T-shirts made that said "Audience Member." <laughs> you know, there were t-shirts with the, for a while there oh, were t-shirts wow. with the names of the uh the characters you know oh, including including um in the, the the nightclub scene um the waiters had um t-shirts saying unemployed actor as opposed to waiter or waitress you know so um but uh yeah merrily um certainly um we're very grateful those of us who have an affinity for it because if there were no merrily there wouldn't be that marvelous documentary the best worst thing that ever could have happened uh, <laughs> one, which i have seen countless times and it makes me cry every time every time alan teasley brings up that cabaret is from i am camera yeah yeah it certainly is and um it's closer um i am a camera is actually closer to the movie of cabaret than uh the play of cabaret um so uh a lot of the things we took for granted as being innovative in the movie of uh cabaret because it's so different of course from the stage show uh if you watch the movie of um i am a camera um, you will see that there are a lot of parallels there. Uh, one of the most potent scenes in that play is when Julie Harris, um, playing Sally Bowles, um, has Lawrence Harvey, I believe it is, um, have him go into a nightclub just for a drink. That's all. Mm. That's all. Just for one drink. That, that's all. One. All right. One drink. Yeah. See what happens after that. It's a scene that uh, is so painful to me that it's almost impossible for me to continue watching the movie. But um, but it's quite a good movie, and she's terrific. Well, would you? She's Julie Harris, of course. She's terrific. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, what's next on your list? Well, Peter mentioned Porgy and Bess, and uh, so you know whether you consider it an opera or a musical. Either way, that that's one of the most successful adaptations. Uh, it's interesting. There, um, many of the classic. Uh, Italian and French and even German operas were based on plays or books in their day. Um, American operas, uh, it seems like there were um, some successful and popular adaptations back in the day. And I don't think anything recently that I can think of, you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Just operas don't 
tend to become, they're not part of the mainstream anymore, even less than they ever were, certainly in this country. But it is interesting to see the plays that were very successfully adopted, adapted into operas in their day. There's a version of The Crucible yeah. by Robert Ward. There's a wonderful opera of, of Mice and Men by Carlisle Floyd. Um, and then there's Regina by mm, Mark Blitzstein, sure. which is based on the Little Foxes. Uh, more recently, uh, we have A Streetcar Named Desire written by Andre Previn, but I don't know if how much of a of a foothold that has gained in the repertoire. And then there were many, many others. Um, oh, another thing I was thinking of, uh, not based on a single play, but on several plays uh, yeah. by Plautus. <laughs> sure. is a funny thing funny happened thing, on the yeah. way to the forum. And then, of course, uh, we have, uh, I guess, not a full-fledged musical in its original incarnation, but The Frogs, uh, also by Sondheim from F. Aristophanes. Well, so, since we're getting into classics, of course, uh, uh, it was a big deal back in 1937 when, when, what, they're making a musical of a Shakespeare play? Wow. Oh, and that was The Boys from Syracuse. But, of course, mm-hmm. uh, since then, we've had many. Uh, there have been so many of Twelfth Night, um, uh, be it Play On or Your Own Thing, which was um, the most successful of them all, an off-Broadway musical that even won the Critics Circle Award uh, that year, which didn't often happen with off-Broadway musicals. But um, but all things considered, uh, we wouldn't have had Kiss Me Kate, um, even though it's not quite an adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, it wouldn't exist without The Taming of the Shrew. So, uh, so we've had that as well. And Ed Dixon, a fine actor, uh, doing a very good show about George Rose, uh, did a musical version of The Merchant of Venice uh, called Shylock, which the York Theatre did many, many moons ago when they were still in their old space at the church. Um, and for that one, they actually used the church as opposed to the um, space downstairs. But um, what was really smart of um, that musical called Shylock was that um, when Bassanio came in to uh, to check out uh, the three caskets to find out uh, whether he's going to pick the, um, mm-hmm. the gold, the silver, or the lead, you did not have the two princes scenes before that to uh, let us know that it wasn't the gold and it wasn't the silver. Uh, he just eliminated that. And really, you don't need that. I mean, that's really true. <laughs> Why not uh, just have Bassanio come in and, uh, and, and make the decision? Um, he makes the decision that he's not going to choose. He gives you the reasons why he's not ta- choosing the gold and the silver. So uh, do we really need to uh, mm. be apprised earlier on that, um, that uh, the gold is in it and the silver is in it? I mean, so um, I applauded Dixon for doing something a little different there. I, as I say, I like when uh, people put on their thinking caps and think outside the box when it comes to uh, adapting plays or anything into musicals. It's nice when that happens, but um, I thought that was uh, quite a master stroke. I was in a production of Boys from Syracuse in college, and I always loved how the two uh, male comic twin characters start off the show uh, as they both come out, uh, you know, as a little, I guess, almost a tiny little prologue. And one of them says something like, this is a story of ancient Greece. And the other one says, uh, it's a case of mistaken identity. 
And then they both say together, if it was good enough for Shakespeare, it's good enough for us. <laughs> and indeed, um, what's so interesting is how it happened, because um, Teddy Hart, uh, the brother of Lorenz Hart, mm. um, bore a great resemblance to a comic at the time called Jimmy Savo. Right. And um, somebody said, gee, have you ever noticed that Teddy and Jimmy look alike? And in fact, they were mistaken for each other. You know, Teddy would be walking down the street and people would say, Jimmy, you know, so that's how it happened happened and um so uh, necessity being the mother of invention well so is um that type of uh just quirk uh that um so so you never know uh, how we wouldn't have the boys from syracuse if those two guys didn't look alike you know because really the idea of taking on a shakespeare play was considered very daunting back then Hmm. All right. So uh, that's a really interesting list here so let's head on to trivia peter do you have an answer for last week's trivia um, <clears throat> which Broadway musical was the first to use an answering machine within a song? And the answer is a family affair. The hmm. 1962 musical, the first John Kander musical and the first without Fred Ebb in collaboration with James Goldman, later of Follies and William Goldman, the two time Oscar winner. The show's star was Shelley Berman, a stand up comedian who made his fortune and reputation pretending to have trouble dealing with bureaucrats on the telephone. And in the song called Revenge, he had a harder time still with an answering machine in a song Taylor made for him. Understand that this is 1962, and I don't even think answering machines were invented then, hmm. or at least they weren't in homes. And one has to wonder if somebody saw um, a family affair and said, gee, what a great idea. I think I'll invent an answering machine. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Jack Leshner was the first to answer, adding that he got the answer from one of my books, because I mentioned this <laughs> in um, uh, the biggest hit, uh, biggest flop book. The only other one to get it was Brigadude, who said that he had hoped that my baseball question of the previous week was a one-off and that I never give another one involving any kind of sport. He said that this baseball question broke his streak of 21 consecutive answers, which I might add can't compare to the Yankee legend and Hall of Famer Joe DiMaggio's streak of hitting 56 straight games in the 1941 season. Anyway, uh, J. Aubrey Jones and John Rubenstein thought the answer was the pajama game for Sid in that show uses a dictaphone, <laughs> which indeed is a machine that answers him in hey there. So we'll give them credit too. Uh, this week's question is specifically for Brigadude because it does involve baseball. You have to face your fears, Briggy. <laughs> you have to. That's how you succeed. So here we go. One of Broadway's most famous and much revived musical ends its first act with a song that makes a baseball reference. And in the second act, the final song we hear also has a baseball reference. What's the musical? What are the two songs? And what are the references? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So you mentioned that John Rubenstein. Uh, yeah. You yeah, know, he's been, uh, he's been in, he's been writing us uh, some emails here and there, and we've got some very entertaining stuff. And Michael, you also have a great John story. I think this is a sweet story. I hope you'll agree. I have recently gotten back into vinyl LPs, as they may have mentioned, and I actually went uh, yesterday to look at a wonderful uh, store called Academy records oh, yeah. Yeah. and they have records that books dvds blu-rays mm. uh, uh they're down on 18th street and um one of the treasures i found there 
was a recording of Arthur Rubinstein, uh, John's mm. father, the great mm -hmm. pianist, uh, in two pieces, Rachmaninoff, the Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini, and the other one is the, the Grieg, uh, the, the famous piano concerto, which <laughs> many musical theater people know from its being featured in How to Succeed mm -hmm. uh, in the Rosemary number. Mm -hmm. But also, this, is, uh, this, this story hopefully just shows how the arts connects all of us in so many ways. I didn't realize until I was re-listening to the Greek Piano Concerto last night that it also has one or two melodies um, by Greek that were used in Song of Norway. Sure. And the reason I realized that when I was listening last night was that I had recently uh, heard again a performance and watched a, a video of uh, our friend Walter Willison had done a, a right and forest tribute a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. And uh, they, of course, adapted Song of Norway. Mm -hmm. uh, Song of Norway was adapted from using the, the melodies of Grieg and um my uh, two two friends of mine, Matt and John Drinkwater, two incredibly talented young performers, sang a song from that with a, a beautiful uh, young soprano named Katie Dixon. That I really I don't really know Song of Norway, uh, and that I think was the first time I heard them sing this trio. And then last night I'm I'm sitting here listening to <laughs> to the the to Arthur Rubinstein brilliantly play the Greek piano concerto. And there were those two melodies. And I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> so the fact that just this random LP that I happened to pick up connects all those people uh, and that those beautiful melodies that, that Greek wrote all those, all those years ago is just something that still uh, gives pleasure to all of us. I, I just think that's uh, a great testament to the power of art and music. Hmm. That's really wonderful. Um, yeah, the Song of Norway thing, uh, Walter has, uh, has pushed that for so long. Uh, it's really got some wonderful, uh, oh, yeah. uh, wonderful songs in it. And, uh, Peter, have you, have you seen a production of Song of Norway recently? Only, only, ironically enough, when I was a kid, um, I was offered tickets to it. And, uh, the way, uh, I, I was like, the young kids of today who don't want to know about the shows of yesteryear. Um, I was uh, virtually insulted that I was being offered tickets <laughs> to Song of Norway because it was an operetta. And, um, and I have always uh, rude the fact that I didn't go. It was a summer stock production. It was mm. like in the early 60s. But I did finally catch up with it when Carnegie Hall did it a few years ago. So, um, and uh, operetta is not my favorite, I have to say, which is one reason why I... Um, understand when kids today uh, think uh, I, I remember the first time a kid said to me um, I don't like Bye Bye Birdie and I said I understand I do so um, so yeah Song of Norway and I have never been uh, great friends <laughs> sounds like a, an encore that should happen yeah it should all right, so uh, that wraps it up for this week, and uh, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroaderVideo.com. If you uh, subscribe to us, you get This Week on Broadway automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Stitcher um, plays us. Uh, Play On plays us. Uh, Google Play plays us. So you can get uh, all of Broadway Video's offerings at uh, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcasts. 
Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to all the things we've talked about today, including Brand Victor Dixon's We Are Foundation uh, and all the information there. So on behalf of uh, Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. It's now a You can't do me